All right, just uh, for a few moments this afternoon, I'd like for you to turn to uh, 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. We won't read the entire chapter, but nearly all the chapters, 2 Peter, chapter 3. The theme uh, began last night on perseverance, pressing on, continuing, anniversaries, homecomings, a good time not only to thank God for the past and the present, but thank God for the future that he has for us as believers and as his churches, as his saints, as citizens of his kingdom. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye be that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise... Look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Living with promise. Living with the promise. I think the great theme of the Bible, I probably shared this with you if I've been here before, I think the great theme of the Bible is in one sentence this, the God of glory who creates and controls all things, saves by grace through the gospel of Christ unto good works to the glory of God. It all begins with the glory of God and it all ends with the glory of God. That's how I can understand why God creates and to some extent how God creates and the purpose for which he creates and my a small, little, minuscule, infinitesimal relationship to that role of being a part of the glory of God, both as his creature and then as his child, and then also as a member of his church. 
Ephesians 3.21 says, Unto Him be glory. Now you say, what is the purpose of the church? Well, the purpose of the church is to evangelize and to disciple and to baptize and to mentor and to send missionaries. Yes, but all those things are to the glory of God. That's why we do those things. He commanded us to do those things, and they are good things. And we, we say, yes, and they bring great joy to people, uh, and they make the glory of God known where it's not known, and they tell people what the future of the world will be, and the purpose of the world, why we were created. People that don't know why they were created, don't know why they exist. We have the answer to that, not because we are smarter than they or we're better than they. We just have the truth. God's given us the truth by grace through His wonderful love that He's loved us. We know why we exist. We've never seen more confusion in, in our generations than now when people say, what's the whole purpose of it? And uh, who am I? And why do I exist? And uh, what is the nature of, uh, uh, of uh, human uh, life? And, and there's such confusion about it. And my heart does go out to it, especially for young people. But it's not just young people. Sometimes it's people of middle age or sometimes people who think they may be nearing the end of their life and they're just torn apart. They think, what's, this? what's it all about? What's the purpose of it? And I visit in nursing homes and situations and I know that those who have faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior, their view of the world and the world to come is so much different than the view of those who don't even understand what this world was about and certainly no understanding what the world to come may be and they have no hope. And uh, many times there's great sadness. If they have no loved ones around them, they're sad uh, because uh, they're lonely. If they do have loved ones, they're sad because they know they're soon to leave them and they have no idea what does the future hold. And none of us knows what day-to-day holds, but I know where I'm headed. I know where I'm going when I leave this place, and I don't mean Addiston. That's my plan today is to go back to Addiston. But uh, whatever God's plan is, I know that I'm on my way to glory. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm on my way to a place that he's prepared for me. And I may not understand everything about it, but I know, I know where I came from. I know how I got here, and I know where I'm going. And I can't tell you what a comfort that is, whatever turmoil is sweeping around you. Young people, if, you, if, you, if I could give you any advice, it'd be this. Figure out where you came from, figure out what you're doing, and figure out where you're going. Now, and I think, by the way, the Bible has all the answers for us. And uh, thank God for a church like Emmanuel Baptist Church that loves people and loves young people and loves people of all ages enough to tell them the truth about where we came from, how we got here, where we're going. In this chapter, I'm looking especially at verse 12. It says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Now, before he gets there, he lays some considerable groundwork. First of all, he lays the groundwork of biblical creation. He says, now you know by the word of the Lord, the earth was standing in the water and out of the water, and I believe that's a direct reference to Genesis 1, and that's how God spoke this world into existence, and I believe he did it in six literal days, but he created the uh, original creation in such a way, the earth, and uh, there was water, and then there was dry land, and uh, read Genesis 1, I believe that's a literal account of what happened, 
And there the earth was, standing in the water, and apparently there was a firmament, and water above the firmament. I may not understand all of the uh, cosmology of it. I may not understand all the details of it, but I believe it was exactly like God's Word says. And that's uh, what he's describing here. It's important to understand that God created the world. It's important to understand that God is the Creator. He's the Creator of all life. Uh, If there's anything we learn from the book of Genesis is that uh, life cannot come from non-life. And uh, before that, nothing can come from nothing. There's just, it's just impossible for nothing to become something. You have to have something to have something else. Is that obvious? I hope nobody here is struggling with that. I hope nobody's saying, well, why do you... I guarantee you that all that wonderful food they prepared downstairs and uh, you ate your fill, I hope, but I guarantee you that there were grocery lists made up and there were ingredients gathered and there was much work that went into preparing that food. It just didn't happen out of nothing. It, there was something... And uh, by the time those ladies got rid and now I'm not offending any man here who cooked something. Maybe you did, maybe you're the chef. But I guarantee you that what they ended up with was a whole lot better than what they started with. But they started with something. They had to have something. And the idea that, uh, uh, that the world and the universe somehow was uh, spontaneously generated, it's just nonsense. The reason they make the whole thing uh, pretend that it's so old is they hope you'll get bored with the story. Uh, well, no, it's 15 billion years ago, and they want to go, you know, year by year, and you think you check out about 3 billion years ago. It's just nonsense. You think, well, you're being foolish. No, they're being foolish. God created the world, and God created us in Adam. He created us. Now, we know we are descended from Adam, But we are creatures of God. We bear His image. Male and female, He created us. We live in a world that's just just baffled by basic biology. It's just staggering to me. It's like, and by the way, you need to have great sympathy for people that confused. And you think, well, they're just being wicked. Yes, some of them are being wicked, and some of them are being led by wicked people. So be, be uh, sympathetic toward people who are being led and taught by wicked, wicked people and snatch them as brands from the burning. Uh, give people, you say, what's the answer? Well, the answer is the gospel. But, I mean, there's a reason why the devil attacks the doctrine of creation. There's a reason why the devil attacks the doctrine of basic biology. And uh, Genesis 1 has, has the answers. Uh, to that. So he lays the groundwork of creation, and then he lays the groundwork of judgment. The idea that, well, has there, if there's a judgment coming, do we have any historical evidence that there has been judgment in the past? Yes, the flood. There is archaeological and uh, geological evidences that there was a worldwide flood in the, uh, in the days of Noah. Just like the Bible says. And Peter says, this is my argument. God created the world and God judged the world. Now what's his groundwork there? His groundwork is saying, 
God is going to do something at the end of this age. And the scoffers and the mockers are saying, when? When's that going to be? We haven't seen any evidence of it. And uh, things are always like they've been and they'll always be the same. No. Even the secularist, they can't get out of their own way on this. They want to say, well, things have always been the way they are and they're always going to be that way. But be careful, we're going to make the world too hot. Now, as Davy Crockett said, that don't make good nonsense. We, the world is just going to continue like it's always been, but be careful, don't burn too many carbon. Now, I'm no scientist, and if you're a scientist and you know more about it than I do, I know this, I'm not worried about the world burning up before God does the incinerating. All I'm saying is, they want to say, well, no, there's no creator who's going to judge this world, but be careful, uh, you, if you don't recycle, you might destroy the world. That, something's not adding up here. So they're saying that maybe things aren't going to continue. Something could happen, and some kind of cataclysm could come. But they say it will be caused by us. That's because... In their system, man is the God. Humanity's the God. You see, we're the people with the power. We're the people who know everything and can do everything. And uh, it's just nonsense. My point is that Peter uses the argument of creation and judgment to prepare his listeners, uh, not to inform them so much, but to encourage them to keep pressing on. And and not to be discouraged by the timetable. Now, I don't think verse 8 is so much a, uh, uh, a systematic reference point for saying like, well, what is this thousand years a day, a day is a thousand years? I think a lot of people are just missing the point and saying, look, God is not bound by time. God has uh, given us time so that we can measure our days and count our days. It's actually a mercy from God that we can see the passage of time. And one of these days, there are going to be no more time. But, but we'll continue to exist. But we won't be measuring days uh, and months and years because we'll be in eternity. You say, well, what will existence be like in eternity? And people have these almost fairy tale ideas. I guess we'll just all be wearing white robes and floating around on clouds. Um, for some people, it won't be much different because they're always up in the air harping about something now. So, uh, some of, no. Uh, but that we have this, these cartoonish ideas of what eternity is going to be like. I, I, I think eternity whether it's the new heaven and the new earth, our existence there is not going to be radically different from this in the sense of self-awareness or being souls inhabiting bodies like we do now. Here you sit today, a soul inhabiting a body. I hope that doesn't seem weird or strange to you. It's just the way we are. We are souls inside of these bodies. Well, it's just that someday we're going to have glorified bodies that have no disease, that are not dying, but they're going to be in many ways 
like these bodies, only glorified bodies. I got a feeling that is an appearance and, uh, and a sensation. I don't know everything about it, but I don't think it's going to be some weird, un, uh, uh, mysterious type of existence. I think for eternity is going to be very familiar to us. The best things of this life are going to be there only better, only better, whether it's plants and trees and uh, animals and whatever. I don't think there's going to be a sparseness or a, uh, you know, an artificial feel to heaven. I think it's going to feel like home. And whatever that means to us, it's going to be real. I just hope you understand. I don't know everything about it, but it's not going to be some antiseptic, clinical, you know, sterile environment where there's no music and there's no art and there's no uh, laughter and there's no singing. It's going to be a wonderful place. And we get some sense of that here, even on earth. Uh, our church services are sort of a foretaste of glory. Uh, our singing, our fellowshipping, our enjoyment of things of God, those are foreshadows of, of heaven. But he uses creation, judgment, and then he says, God doesn't look at time like you look at time, but he's not slack concerning his promise, and that's the key of the chapter here. Because remember, they're mocking about, where's the promise of his coming? Verse 4. And uh, then in verse 9, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. I think verse 9 is often misunderstood, because I think it clearly is talking about God's patience toward his saints, to his elect, to usward. He's long-suffering. Uh, to usward, that is, those who are to believe, or do believe, no one of God's elect is going to perish before the gospel reaches them and they trust Christ as their Savior, and God's going to fulfill all his purposes. And then this idea that, well, I guess God doesn't know when to uh, uh, send his son or when to end the world. God knows. God knows what he's doing, and God's working all things after the counsel of his will. You can be sure he's got a blueprint for uh, the end of this age, whether we understand it or not, whether we agree with it or not, God's blueprint is working just according to his schedule, and God's uh, going to keep his promise, and he is not slack. He's not behind the schedule. He's not been thrown off the schematic. He's not been uh, disrupted by something Nebuchadnezzar did, or some president did, or some king did, or some population on earth did something that nothing ever has disrupted God's purposes, and he is working all things after his will. But that day is coming, he says. And uh, it's a very serious day, he says, because uh, the earth and the heavens, there are actually three heavens, the first heavens, the clouds that we see, the second heavens, space, the stars, and third heaven, that's where God dwells, that's eternal. But the heaven... The first and second heaven and the earth are going to be dissolved in fervent heat. Dr. John MacArthur says they're going to uncreate. God's going to uncreate them, dissolve. Elements are going to be separated, go back to basic form, whatever they do. And we're to be watching for that. We're to be looking for that. Verse 12, looking for that and hasting. That's an interesting English word, hasting. We don't use it a lot. We sometimes misread this and think it says hastening. It doesn't say hastening. 
as Brother Cheryl will back me up on this, we have here an intransitive verb, right? There's no object. We are not accelerating the return of Christ. You understand that we're not going to burn up the earth accidentally, and we are not accelerating the day when Jesus will come by saying, oh, I did these three things, so that means Jesus will come back a day sooner. No, we are not hastening that day. We are hasting unto the day. What's the difference? It doesn't have to do with the speed of that day approaching. It has to do with the speed of you approaching the day. It's not talking about the pace of the coming. It's talking about the pace of our going. You say, well, what is that? Well, that has to do with our diligence. That has to do with our uh, ministry. That has to do with our seriousness. That has to do with our behavior. That has to do with our activity. And in a kind way, I think we could say this, it's pick up the pace. A lot of 20th, first century Christianity, especially American Christianity, is a lot of lollygagging. We just get up and we kind of mosey along, sometimes in the right direction, doing some good things, but we're just sort of lackluster, sort of half-hearted, half-awake. No wonder the Bible is often saying, Christians, wake up, wake up. I like to use that in the afternoon, after we had a meal like that. Wake up. There's many passages where the Bible says, hey, wake up. It's, talking to, it's not talking to lost people there. It's saying, Christians, get out of the hammock. Get up out of the lazy boy and get busy for the Lord. Now, are there times to be in the hammock and rest? Yes. Are there times to recline in the lazy boy? Yes. But when it's time to serve God, it's time to get up and haste and do it with whole hearts, as unto the Lord, the Bible says. Get, this is time for Emmanuel Baptist Church to get busy. And I don't mean running off in all directions without any plan, without any direction. I mean doing the things that you know a church should be doing, but doing them with, with diligence. That's what he says here in verse 14. He says, as we look for the new heavens... Verse 14, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Let me give you an example of where Christians can be very lazy. I know this is true because we're all human beings. And sin is constantly waging war against us. That old Adamic sin nature, the devil and the world are constantly against us, bombarding us with evil thoughts, temptations, distractions, and uh, we come to a point point we think like, well, I know it's almost the end of the day and I haven't read God's Word today. I just barely had time to watch three hours of television. Only four hours on Facebook. And I just barely had time to eat my meals and the day is ending, and I haven't read what God's Word yet. Uh, but I have time to sit down and rest. And we, we're sometimes, we don't go to war with the flesh every day like it's a war. We act like it doesn't matter. 
We let anger seep into our minds. Jealousies, petty grievances, bickering. One of my favorite uh, descriptive words in the New Testament is murmuring. I don't know if you know the technical meaning of that, but I guarantee we've all done it. Sort of mumbling under our breath. We let little things, little foxes come in and spoil the vines of our fruitfulness. And we know that it's happening and we think, you know, tomorrow I really need to shake that off. I really need to push that away. I really need to repent of that. Tomorrow I'm going to get right with God. The next revival we have at the church, I'm going to go forward. Rededicate my life. I hope it's not till next spring, but what's wrong with today? What's wrong with today to rededicate your life? Repurpose your life. I can meddle just a little bit here because I'm, I'm soon to leave. And um, I wonder how many husbands are loving your wife sacrificially like Christ loved his church and you're doing it right now, right today. Why, this morning, you awoke and you said, Sweetheart, I just want you to know I love you more than life itself. I love you with all my heart, love all my soul, with all my mind. Is there anything I could do for you today that would make your life better, sweetheart? Now, I don't know how many of you started your day like that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I wonder how many of you husbands might say, You're godly men, you're Christians, you're faithful members. I wonder how many of you might be able to end your day like that. You say, you know, I was thinking about what he said. I'm supposed to love you like Christ loves the church. I, I, need, I need to do that. I need to, you say, well, I, I told her I loved her when I got married. If I change my mind, I'll let her know. Uh, I'm not sure that's, that's not what Christ does for his church. His mercies are new every morning, aren't they? Aren't his blessings, isn't his love new every day? You see, my point is that sometimes as Christians, and I'm sure I could meddle in the wives' domain a little bit. I'm sure I could meddle in parents or church members or officers or Sunday school teachers or preachers. Sometimes we're so lackadaisical about not recognizing sin. I think, for the most part, faithful Christians who are in the Word, even on a semi-regular basis, they recognize sin when it shows up. We don't have any trouble looking out in the world and saying, boy, that's wrong. That is wicked. Look it up over there. That, see what they did? See what they said? See what the world... That's sin! I don't think we have any real difficulty recognizing sin in us either. The Holy Spirit's in us. The Word of God rebukes us. Maybe our loved ones say like, why are you so angry? Why are you so bitter? Why are you... Why are you so out of sorts? Oh, I don't know. I'm just in a bad mood. Well, get out of a bad mood. Get in God's Word and cleanse your ways. You say, well, yeah, I'm going to do that. Why not do it today? That's what hasting under the coming of the Lord is. Pick up the pace. We, we fall into lazy habits. We're always going to do something sometime. Someone said, you know, when a wives, when your husband tells you he will do that thing you've asked him to do, don't keep nagging him for the next six months. 
Why? Because we put things off. We procrastinate. We do it in our relationships. We do it in our walk with God. And, and Peter says, you need to haste. You need to pick up the pace. It's not anxiety. It's not fear. It's not um, paranoia about what's going to happen. It's the diligence with which we're serving God. Emmanuel Baptist Church, I, I just pastored long enough, I suspect you're like Addison Baptist Church, and we need to pick up the pace. Now, here's the problem. The preacher can get up and say, we need to pick up the pace. And the only pace he can pick up is his own. Because he can't, he can't pick up your pace. He can't make you more diligent. He can preach the word to you, teach, he can pray for you, but you have to pick up the pace for yourself. And whatever a church is accomplishing, I just know that there is an opportunity for Christians to haste unto the coming of the Lord. So he uses creation, he uses judgment, and he uses this promise. He says, seeing that you look for such things, what makes us lazy? What makes us indifferent? What makes us callous? What makes us careless with the work of the ministry? We lose sight of the promise. We become so preoccupied with this house in which we live here that we forget that there is a mansion waiting for us. Now, don't get me wrong. We need the house here. We got to live somewhere. God may have, like he's blessed me, richly blessed you. But we become so obsessed with this house that we forget about what the eternal house is. It's not that we're involved necessarily in bad things. We've just lost our priorities. We've lost our urgency. Look, look at the signs. Our Sunday school teacher did a good job. Look at the signs around us. Evil's called good and good's called evil. Christians are being verbally, politically, if not persecuted, prosecuted, even in Western countries, Western world. And if that's not a sign of, of what the perilous times are, we certainly are living in perilous times. So what should we do? We should haste. We should pick up the pace. Notice with me, he says in verse number 14, he says, if you look for such things, be diligent that you may found of him in peace. That means live at peace with one another. Church members, let's live at peace with each other. Do whatever we have to do to have peace in the body of Christ. Uh, live without spot. When sin comes into your life, and it does every day, confess it, turn from it, repent of it, push it out. Paul told uh, Christians that they should actually capture every thought, bring every thought into obedience. I've talked with Christians, and I, I've struggled with that too. It's like, you mean I'm responsible for capturing my thoughts rolling around in my head? I kind of like the idea that, well, you can't help what you think. Some people can't help what they think and say what they can't help what they think. And 
And actually, the Bible says you're supposed to capture that thought and bring it into obedience of Christ before it gets to your mouth. Now, it may need to be said. Sometimes you have to say truth sometimes is painful. But make sure you've captured that thought and brought it into obedience to Christ first. That'll lead to a lot of peace. It'll also lead to a lot of spot removing in your life. You think, well, I can't help it. I just have these fears. They just rattle around in my head. And I think, what is the stock market going to do? What's the economy going to do? What's inflation going to do? What are prices going to do? What is the world going to do? It's like, and all this fear is rattling around in our head. And we need to lasso those thoughts and bring them into obedience to Christ and push away those things and live by faith and not by fear. Doesn't mean we stick our head in the sand. Doesn't mean we ignore. It means we don't live in fear. We live in faith. So uh, we live in peace. We live in spot, blameless. My Christians, what an opportunity for church members to live an example before others, especially young people. You don't think young people know if we're really serious about this or not? If we're really diligent about our Christian faith, our Christian walk, our Christian words, our Christian ministry, you don't think our children and our grandchildren know if it's, if it's really important or not? And I don't mean just every now and then or once a week. I mean every day. Are they seeing priority number one being seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Say, well, preacher, you know, you got to eat, you got to have a roof over your head, you got to have clothes. You know, Jesus said if you would seek first the kingdom of heaven, all those things would be added to you. In other words, seeking God's kingdom is a greater priority than what you're going to eat today, or where today, or where you're going to live. Now, I'm not suggesting that those things aren't important, where you eat. Where you live and what you wear, very important. It's just that seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness is more important than that. Do our, do our young people see that in us? Do our neighbors see that in us? I reminded the, the fellow that uh, lost his eyesight and um, he had to be driven to church. And every time they picked him up, they came out of there carrying this big old family Bible. And finally someone said... I'm sorry, why, is that Braille? He says, no, it's just an old family Bible on the coffee table. And she says, why do you carry that? You can't see it. You can't read it. He says, I want all my neighbors to know whose side I'm on. I, I, want, them to, I want them to see the Bible. I'm thinking, I like that. Do people see the diligence in us? Do they see the peace in us? Do they see the blamelessness? You think, well, nobody's perfect. Well, that's his point here. Deal with that every day. Be ready to tell other Christians. Be ready to tell your young people, I fall short every day. Here's, and I need you to forgive me. I've asked God to forgive me. We don't pretend that we're sinless. We don't pretend that we're perfect. We don't pr pretend that we've arrived. We're just trying to show diligence, to live at peace, to be spotless and blameless. Because we have hope. The God of glory who creates and controls all things saves by grace through the gospel of Christ unto good works to the glory of God. I like to close with Revelation chapter 20. 
John saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I think it was the New Christie minstrels back in the day uh, saying, A new world coming. Uh, their theology was probably off in a few places, but uh, there is a new world coming. There's a world to come. I love it when he says, I make all things new. I'm constantly thankful that he doesn't say, I make all new things. You know what the difference is? Jesus made me a new creature. But he saved me and made me a new man. You know, he could have just destroyed the Adamic race altogether and created a new race of humanity. Certainly, he's sovereign. Certainly, he's, he's Lord of his creation. He owed us no redemption. He offered no redemption to the devil and his angels. A created order more lofty than are we. But he sent his son to humble himself and become the God-man, and he made me a new man. God's making old things new. He is restoring old things. He's rescuing old things. You know what? God can not only make lost sinners save sinners, God can make failing marriages loving marriages. God can make indifferent, cold-hearted Christians into zealous, loving, sacrificial Christians. He can take the old things and make them new. What does God need to make new in your life? What does God need to renovate in your life? What does God need to restore and refurbish? Is it a faithfulness to the the work of God? Is it faithfulness in your marriage? Is it faithfulness in your ministry? Is it Emmanuel Baptist Church's commitment to haste together unto the coming of the Lord? May God find us faithful and more fervent. What is God, what step of obedience do you need to take today? Father, I pray you'll bless this good church and pastor. What a blessing to see them mark this anniversary. I think of the sacrifices that were made and are being made just to sustain the work here. Whether it's Sunday school teachers or officers or singers or givers, whatever they do. But Father, if there just be something we could do as Christians to, to pick up the pace. Many times we are careless, and we're just slackening. 
Father, help us to haste unto the coming of the Lord. All the signs indicate that He is coming. The promises are sure. New heaven and new earth. New home, heaven. Father, our opportunity to evangelize will soon be over. Our opportunities to be witnesses to lost people and to win them to Christ will soon be over. Help us to be busy. Help us to be faithful. Hasting unto the coming of the Lord and the promises that we believe in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Stand for the invitation.